0: actor Zoe Perry on playing a younger version of her real mom on the hit show Young Sheldon, on Roseanne's cancellation, plus the best of the pop culture confidential season. Hey guys, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original. I'm Christina Yerling Biró. So later on the show, I talk to actor Zoe Perry from the hit CBS sitcom Young Sheldon. Now she's doing something I don't know if I've seen on TV before. She's playing the younger version of the part that her real mom, who we know from Roseanne and Lady Bird, Laurie Metcalf, originated on the massive hit Big Bang Theory, Sheldon Cooper's mom, Mary. Later on the show, I talked to Zoe Perry about following in her parents' footsteps her thoughts on the cancellation of the Roseanne reboot after Roseanne Barr's racist tweets and her own hit show, Young Sheldon. But first... Henry Winkler, Michael Kenneth Williams, legendary costume designer of Black Panther, Ruth Carter, The Shape of Water's Doug Jones, Gustav Skarsgård, Manhunt Unabomber, Queer Eye, Killing Eve, The Me Too Movement. These are just a few of the great guests, shows, and themes that have been a part of the Pop Culture Confidential Spring season. The thrill of doing this show for me and my goal has always been to... Reflect our cultural moment and dive into stuff that interests me books shows trends and topics the fun ones and the more difficult How pop culture intersects with politics with our lives and just what's entertaining us right now the pop culture spring season has been a blast this winter Ahead of the movie The Shape of Water being nominated for 13 Oscars and winning four major categories, I got to talk to actor Doug Jones, who plays the iconic amphibian man in The Shape of Water and has worked with director Guillermo del Toro many times.
1: Uh, I feel like I'm a monster myself, and I I think anybody who who isn't perfect uh, understands what it feels like to be the monster in the room. Um, and, and, you know, when I was, when I was a teenager, I thought I was the only one.
0: Why would you say you're a monster? A- well, uh,
1: as a teenager, I'm, I'm, I'm tall. I'm very tall. I'm very skinny. Uh, I was not athletically inclined. I, I was, I ran track and cross country, but I didn't know how to, I couldn't ba- bounce a basketball. Uh, and so when you grow up in Indiana, in the Midwest, in America, uh, that that's a great way to be made fun of if you <laughs> mm-hmm. don't fit that perfect small sliver of what's considered normal. So uh, so for me, I, I was like, I was an odd-looking, class clown, and so I, I developed a sense of humor as as a, a means of survival. So, so when when asked to play monsters, uh, then I'm I'm obviously the odd one in the room because I'm made up to be so, but uh, but I can relate to the heart and soul of what that feels like because uh, the classic monster tales that that inspired Guillermo and the movies he makes himself with a creature in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the creature is always a, a sympathetic being where um, where he didn't ask for the situation he's in.
0: The movie that probably impacted the pop cultural landscape the most this spring was Black Panther, Ryan Coogler's magnificent superhero movie. With the help of legendary costume designer Ruth Carter, they created a new country, Wakanda, influenced by African culture and design, as well as bringing kick-ass female characters to the screen. I asked Miss Carter what vision she and director Ryan Coogler had for the women of Wakanda.
2: The women usually have this, you know, provocative look about them, Um, but we were seizing the opportunity. Um, to rewrite that a little because this, um, world had never been seen before in film. And it was our opportunity to start a trajectory of these women who could look beautiful, are beautiful, um, and could be fully clothed. So. And sexy, I mean. And sexy, yeah. Yeah,
0: they really are. Yes. And
2: also because, you know, the Black Panther is basically a guy who's walking around in a skin-tight black suit. We didn't want to have his elite fighting force in, you know, uh, tube tops and cheerleader skirts. We wanted them to actually look badass, like real fighters.
0: Now I love talking to specialists, people who in different ways consult behind the scenes of our biggest film and series, or are the focus of the series. One of my most interesting conversations this season was with former FBI agent and criminal profiler James Fitz Fitzgerald, one of the agents who brought down the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. James Fitzgerald talked to me about how his meeting with a linguistics professor led him to start looking into the language used in the Unabomber's manifesto, one of the keys that would ultimately lead to his capture.
3: He had been given an advanced copy of the manifesto, that's the 56-page, uh, 35,000-word uh, treatise that the Unabomber wrote, and who, and, and he wanted it published by the New York Times or the Washington Post, and if so, he would agree to stop bombing. Mm-hmm. So I talked to this, his name is Professor Roger Shai, retired from Georgetown, and he's the first linguist I ever met, probably the first discussion I ever had in my life about uh, the science of language linguistics, and I was quite... Um, Uh, encouraged by what I learned from him and what he imparted to me about some of the language features in this manifesto and how he could actually say the individual who wrote this most likely was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, because there are references to older newspapers uh, and some of the language from those newspapers in the manifesto. So he is putting, uh, from a linguistic perspective, this professor was saying, we think, uh, I think, meaning him, the author was born and raised in Chicago. And because the profilers in the case separately said his uh, comfort zone, his area of familiarity, again, meaning the Unabomber, Mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. Chicago because the first four bombs were either set there or mailed from there. Uh, Now we have two different sort of sciences independently saying our, our offender at least his roots are in Chicago. I mean, I don't know where he is right now, but there is roots. And I said, you know what? This linguistic stuff may be worth something. So actually on the flight out, uh, it was a six hour flight from DC to San Francisco. And I spent uh, about three quarters of that reading the various documents uh, associated with the Unabomber case, really getting into them. And uh, and I, I, it, that's what turned me on to when I first met the bosses out there. I said, yeah, I'm a profiler. Yeah, between my police officer years and seven years in New York, I'm a seasoned investigator. But I'll tell you what, guys, I think if you give me some leeway here to run with the language in these newly received documents, I think we can take this case to the next level. And it turns out I was right.
0: And then there's geneticist Dr. Adam Rutherford, whose consulting work on many, many sci-fi films has been imperative to the directors. Most recently, he consulted on Netflix Annihilation. He talked to me about how he and director Alex Garland worked with real science.
4: All three times he's presented me with a script and says, look, there's some scientific ideas in this. I want to make sure that they are grounded in real science. And so in talking about Annihilation, one of the things that we've been saying is that it is fiction. And a lot of the biology that we're talking about in, or the characters are talking about in Annihilation it is fiction. It's, it's not possible but it's not bullshit right it's 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 try we, you know we try to ground it in scientific ideas that are real and contemporary and things that scientists uh, are actively researching or that you know i teach but that they are they're, they're manipulated or they're twisted or they're enhanced in such a way that they are um that they're fictionalized he's really keen to get proper scientific ideas that push the boundaries of uh of human experience and human knowledge into his films.
0: Last season, we talked a lot about the Me Too movement. This season brought the first high-profile conviction as Bill Cosby was found guilty of sexual assault. Journalist Annette John-Hall, who followed the case, filled us in on what this means going forward and how she thinks Mr. Cosby's sentencing will go later this summer.
5: You know, a lot of people are thinking that You know, he will get the minimum, if anything at all, because he's old and he he has sight issues and he has health issues. I mean, you know, Christina, you can't separate. I mean, you can, but it's difficult to separate the sexual predator from the beloved entertainer here. And I think that's global, really. Who has given so much to people through his art, through the Cosby show, through you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember him. I was a kid, but I'm old enough to remember him being on I Spy as the first African American really to star in a major episodic television show. He's given all kinds of money to all kinds of educational institutions. He's given artwork, he and his wife, to the Smithsonian He's helped countless students through college. So this is a man who's done a lot. I believe that the judge will take all of that in consideration um, when imposing a sentence his age and just what he means to the culture at large, especially for African-Americans because I'm, I'm African-American and I have a hard time wrestling with that because I understand You know, the unfairness of the criminal justice system in this country against African-American males. And a lot of friends that I've spoken to have questioned that, have questioned why Bill Cosby and not Woody Allen or Harvey Weinstein, or even the president of the United States, Donald Trump.
0: And speaking of that, this is sort of the first high profile guilty verdict in a Me Too era um, for all these people you mentioned. Do you think that we'll see anything come of this for others?
5: Well, I would think so. From my understanding is that victims are preparing cases against Harvey Weinstein as we speak. You know, if anything, I think that this emboldens women to really hold these powerful men accountable for their actions. Now that they see that they can win a case, they can actually be believed and win a case.
0: Right. A global conversation about why women's stories aren't believed. over.
5: Right. That's correct
0: screenwriter and host of the hugely popular podcast Script Notes, Craig Mazin, talked to me about his experiences working with the Weinsteins.
6: It was very difficult. Um, Mostly I worked with Bob. I would say 98% of my dealings with their company, first as Miramax and, and Dimension and then as the Weinstein company, was with Bob. And so I never, I mean, you know, I had probably four or five conversations with Harvey over the course of seven or eight years. And I should say, and I always do that, I had no idea um, about what was going on. Um, I I knew that from experience that both of them could be very abusive verbally. Um, Certainly Bob was verbally abusive to me. And it was hard. And it it was bad.
0: Which movies were these?
6: Well, so Scary Movie 3. And Scary Movie 4 and Superhero, the, the parody movies, you know, um, were all written and produced under duress, oh, great wow. duress, from Bob. And uh, and they were hard enough to begin with. Um, and by the time we got to the last one, um, it got really bad. And it, it was, you know, it definitely messed me up. And, and so again, I have to say, all this comes with the asterisk, and yet that company, at least Harvey was certainly capable of doing far, far worse and did far, far worse to other people. So I can't, I'm not, I can't really complain. It would, it's unseemly to complain um, about my experience. I think I'm just, it's terrifying. Um, That whole thing is terrifying because I didn't know, and that that actually is very disturbing to think about. You know, people when they discover serial killers, the the classic thing that the person that's interviewed, the neighbor, you know, I did. He just seemed like a you know perfectly normal guy. That's what the neighbor always says, and you think, really, Jeffrey Dahmer seemed like a perfectly normal guy, even though he was eating people. And then you know, I knew that you know certainly Harvey was not a perfectly normal guy. But I did not see; I just didn't register that that was a thing that could be going on, and it's just terrible. I just my heart goes out to everybody that ever worked for those guys. Honestly, anyone, but in particular, um, God, you know the women. uh, It's just yeah, it's heartbreaking.
0: Several great books have covered how women have revolutionized TV and entertainment. Comedy writer Nell Scovell talked to us about her many experiences of being the only woman in the writer's room. And author Joy Press's book, Stealing the Show, chronicled many women who have revolutionized television.
7: A lot of those women, and certainly some of the women in my book, have just battled through it. Um, It's their personality and, you know, certainly somebody like Amy Sherman Palladino um, who created Gilmore Girls and and now uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, you know, basically just said at one point she was getting calls from, you know, executives constantly harassing her about things and and she just said, you know, look, you're not my mother, so either stop (laughs) calling me or fire me, you know, one or the other. So, you know, and that certainly um, is a, a kind of one way to one way to work with it. Many of these women came through the ranks being the only woman in the writers' room, or one of two women in the writers' room. And so, you know, if you are the only one, it's strange. Your your being a woman becomes a big deal. And so, you know, they wanted to create crew and and writers' rooms where there were lots of women lots of different kinds of voices.
0: One of the stories that impacted me the most this season was one of my TV idols, Michael Kenneth Williams, who portrayed the iconic character Omar on the Wire. He talked about his new documentary, Raised in the System. It's a personal journey to expose the roots of the American mass incarceration crisis, the juvenile justice system. Here, he talked about his own nephew's story. That's also part of the documentary.
8: Um, my nephew, Dominic, was a very decent, is and was a very decent young man. He was in Bible college. He worked. He, um, he helped take care of his family. Um, and one day... His uh, his twin brother was being accosted by a gang of of young men over a female, right? Because we've all heard that story before: young boys fighting over a girl. Um, and my nephew went to defend his twin brother, um, which, but again, not brain surgery here. That's that's what kids do. We de- we defend our family. So that anybody would they would defend their family. The only difference is Dominic had as an as an adolescent youth he had way too much access to illegal firearms, as we all do in a community like where I come from. And and that's the issue we need to speak to as well. You know, um, had Dominic not had that access to that illegal firearm that, that plagues our streets in the communities where I come from, that would have been a fist fight at best, a couple of bumps and bruises, and everybody would have lived to go home and talk about it the next day. Because of because of all the illegal firearms that are in my community, you know, bad decisions. We have way too much access to tools to act to, to to execute our already bad decision, you know. And that's what happened to my nephew Dominic.
0: And so he was incarcerated for how long?
8: Dominic spent 20 years, seven months, and 50 days in a maximum security prison.
0: Another interview that impacted me greatly this season was my childhood idol, Henry Winkler, The Fonz, who just finished an excellent season on HBO's Barry. He shared his struggles with dyslexia.
9: Here's the honest truth. I am dyslexic. I have a learning challenge. Honest. I was bad in math. I can't spell to this day. Reading is really difficult because of the wiring in my brain, but I had a dream when I was seven. And when I finally got to live my dream, and I lived it, I mean, times 57, when I got on Happy Days and I was having this incredible time, I did not grow an inch. Mm. I was no taller. I could not do math. I still couldn't spell. So something said in me, oh, I see. All this is happening, but maybe I'm not any different than I was the moment before I started this character. Mm -hmm. And then you have a family and your children and your wife keep you grounded. They nail your shoes to the
0: earth. I have to commend it. Your dedication to... Awareness for dyslexia has been incredible. If people have seen all the books that you have, you know, published, everything you've done to help people learn about this. But I'm really curious, how did you get through Yale? You, you say yourself that you didn't read a book until you were like in your 30s. 31,
9: right, that is true. And every book that I read uh, is like a triumph. I, I have. Every book, most of the books, almost 99% of the books that I read are hard copy, and they sit on the shelf, and they are, I look at them every day, and they are like a triumph. Each one is um, a little mountain that I have climbed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where there is a will, there is a way. If you want something, you are going to figure out how to get it, or... Just pack up your marbles and go home.
0: But did you memorize texts or something when you were doing auditions? Well,
9: I memorized it. I read it one word at a time so that I didn't leave any words out. My eyes would cross. I would fall asleep if I read, you know, for longer than 10 minutes. So I, you just, you find your way. You never lose your dyslexia. You only learn to negotiate it.
0: And Swedes are everywhere. This season, I talked to director Yuan Renk about his upcoming HBO series, Chernobyl, and Gustav Skarsgård, who's on this season of Westworld. We talked about what he learned from his famous father, Stellan.
10: Like growing up with a dad who's an actor, as most people probably know, I didn't, ha- I didn't, like my my dad, when I was a kid, he worked in the theater up until I was like eight. He worked in the theater you know, 24/7, constantly rehearsing something, playing something else, and he did a movie now and then, and it was it was tough, it was hard work. Um, so I didn't have any sort of misconception about this being a sort of glamorous occupation by any means back then. But I think there must have been something in his passion about it that was appealing to me as a kid. Uh, that what is that thing that He's doing that's obviously even more important than us <laughs> you know <laughs> so so I think that was kind of infectious as a kid to see that sort of passion that dad had so and then I got a chance to to try it out as you know a six year old or whenever I had my first little role uh, and I loved it it was like I, I you know get get to play pretends and I get paid for it uh, you know even as a kid and and the idea that that is an occupation is just amazing, or was amazing to me. So, so I, I decided really early on that that was what I wanted to do.
0: And it turned out to be a really great year in television after all. Atlanta, Barry, and then there was one that I didn't expect to be crying to at every episode. And that was the reboot of Queer Eye. It turns out it has all the feels. Star Karamo Brown talked to me about a scary episode on Queer Eye when he thought he was being pulled over by a white police officer and why this has resonated so much with viewers.
8: Yeah, I'm happy that it happened because it allowed a conversation that I've been getting so many responses from people of all different races and cultural backgrounds who are just like, thank you for being willing to have that conversation and being willing to be open and allow him to be open. And so it's Bringing to about some change,
0: and one of my new favorite TV shows of the season was definitely Killing Eve, a terrifically acted, thrilling new show about an MI5 agent played by Sandra Oh chasing the psychopath killer Villanelle played by Jodie Comer. The author of the Villanelle books, Luke Jennings, talked to me about how being tired of that bitter whiskey drinking detective trope inspired the two women in his stories
11: spy stories detective stories i mean i just devour them actually but i have been disappointed in recent years because they get so techie so tiresomely macho the, the sort of loner guy with his love of jazz and his alcohol habit and his broken marriage. I mean, give us a break.
0: The female sort of kick-ass spy can be so stereotypical. She's always chasing a guy and there's always a reason. What was your sort of intention with these two women and their relationship?
11: Well, I think that they each fulfill something that's missing in the other's life. And they develop this kind of fascination for each other, which is, it's more of a, of a tension that even when they're not in the same place, there is that tension between them. They feel the other's presence and and the consequence of the other's actions. It's that kind of slightly confused relationship that you might have with someone where you're not quite sure if you're very attracted to them or if you actually want to be them. It's a fascination of opposites, and it's also a fascination of somebody who seems to have something that you can't hold and grasp in your own life. So they're complementary characters. And also, without wanting to put in a spoiler, Eve answers something in Villanelle's personal history that Villanelle responds to. So it's just a tension between them that they can't get each other out of each other's heads. They can, Well, they can't get each other out of their own heads.
0: And you can go back and find all of these interviews on popcultureconfidential.com. And now. Actor Zoe Perry grew up around the theater, on sitcom and television sets. Her parents are Laurie Metcalf. She played Jackie, Roseanne's sister, on the original Roseanne, as well as the newly canceled reboot, as well as Lady Bird's mom in Greta Gerwig's hit film. Her dad is Jeff Perry, star of the TV show Scandal. Zoe Perry is known for her work on Law & Order, The Family, and alongside her father on Scandal. And now she's playing the role originated by her real mother, Sheldon Cooper's mother on the CBS hit The Big Bang Theory. And Zoe is playing the younger version on Mary on the CBS prequel Young Sheldon, produced by the legendary producer Chuck Lorre. Excuse me, did you sell this to my son?
1: I don't know. Who's your son?
0: The little boy in the corner.
1: Which one?
2: Sheldon Cooper.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Look at him! He is the same size as one of the dolls you sell here.
8: Those are action figures.
2: Where's your sense of responsibility? Have you looked inside this
0: book? Because I have.
1: At that moment, I felt a subtle heat rising through my body. I was used to being humiliated by my siblings on a daily basis, but from my mother, this was new territory.
2: Mom, you're embarrassing me. Is that right? Well, guess what? I don't care. And if I catch you doing it again, I'll be back with my husband. He is way scarier than me.
0: Last year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Chuck Laurie. Now, next to Norman Lear, he may be one of the grandmasters of the American sitcom, a very specialized art form. I started by asking Miss Perry what the challenges are for an actor working in the sitcom genre. Oh,
2: well, it's a good question. I mean, it is a, a challenge and a unique one, and um, I feel lucky to get to do it because it can be so fun but but yes, there's a precision to it and and um, people who are marvelous at it I mean Jim Parsons to name one um, are are just so yeah they can be so precise but they make it look so easy and uh, and that really is such a um, so I feel like I'm always trying to uh, perfect that or get better or evolve because um, you make someone laugh or you don't,
0: Right, right. <laughs> you know, and
2: you know very, very quickly uh, whether or not you're successful.
0: And you guys don't use a laugh track, I understand, which is the difference from his other shows.
2: That's right. Yeah, we, um, we're single camera, so there's no there's no audience. Um, it's just us. But we do have the benefit of uh per- sometimes hearing our producers from um you know off stage of uh and if we get a chuckle out of them we think we've landed on something good.
0: <laughs> but what is the sort of special th- sauce that Mr. Laurie has?
2: I don't know how to encapsulate all of it except that I mean clearly he's so talented. I mean his humor is so 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 funny and it's so universal. Um I think he's just always always managed to make even the most unlikely characters relatable right. and I think It's because he finds a humanity in all of them.
0: Many of us try desperately to choose other paths than our parents. You can't (laughs) get enough of working with them. Um, You are playing a younger version of your mother. Now, did you study her mannerisms in order to play Mary?
2: Well, I definitely knowing that I was going to go in and audition for this, I went back and I rewatched all of her episodes because I definitely wanted to be sure that I was um you know living in the same world as her that the dialect sounded similar, and that uh any any way of uh how she carried herself you know was something I could replicate but I mean uh there are some things just naturally at my disposal when it comes to my voice and when it comes to mannerisms like that's That's uh, happily something I don't have to think too hard on, but um, when it comes to playing this version of Mary Cooper, I guess I've just found it a real privilege that I have a little latitude and some freedom because, you know, we're just being introduced to her at a different stage of her life, and she is different, I think, than Than the one we get to know on the Big Bang, and her priorities are different, her family dynamic is different, and uh, you know, and she doesn't, uh, she only has the life experience that she has at this stage, so uh, it's it's cool.
0: You're really playing the original version of your mom, which is yeah, no one's really done that before, (laughs) right. I, I I can't remember going back into anyone doing what you got you and your mom are doing at the moment, but uh, maybe there are other examples. I
2: know, surreal. Mm-hmm. I uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever happened before. Right,
0: but you grew up on all kinds of sets, and particularly in the theater. I'm interested in in what you've learned about your mother, and I mean more as a person. I I I was listening to Gwyneth Paltrow talk about her watching her mother, Blythe Danner, when she was young yeah. at the theater, and what she sort of discovered about her as a woman. Have, have yeah. you, what, what can you say? Well, I know
2: that growing up, um, yes, I, I definitely got to watch both my parents perform quite a bit in theater and got to attend theater with them. And I think the most impactful thing I took away was the passion they had for it. You know they are very much who they are and still you know the same people who grew up in you know <laughs> a suburb of Chicago and then in southern illinois and um I think it's because they were just always drawn to this particular art and uh, and then luckily enough, that passion always kind of remained with them so it was a it was a cool experience to just see one's parents. Really love what they do, mm-hmm. and and treat it with a particular level of respect, and and uh, worked at it, and you know never never really be satisfied that they had like figured it out, you know they were always still very curious, and so I I guess I just feel really lucky that that same passion translated to me because you know I there's no guarantee.
0: But they did not want you to start acting, I understand. Was this your form of rebellion?
2: <laughs> uh well, you know, I growing up I did not think I would act uh. because I, as much as I loved watching them, I I I was uh, fairly shy as a kid and uh I didn't think I had that particular ambition and they never dissuaded me, but once I decided I did want to pursue it. Over time I I understood, you know, what any reservations they might have. They were they were never uh, uh anything but vocally supportive. Um but I but I understood, you know, it's it, it's got to be scary to have your child pursue um any career with such uncertainty. And um and I I'm I'm really appreciative to them for, you know, not dissuading me. But it's been really cool to get to work with both of them individually because I think it also,
0: I don't know, just kind of introduced ourselves to each other in a different way. That must be amazing. And they were like, okay, you can go into acting, but as long as you're on our shows or our shows adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> right. you can keep an uh, eye as on if you.
2: The act- had any say, but it has luckily turned out that way, so I never uh, in my wildest dreams would have thought it would like this, but
5: yes.
0: (laughs) You also played a younger version of your mom on Roseanne, and uh, this week's news was a hard hit. Do you think that ABC made the right decision in canceling the show? Well, I don't know. I mean,
2: listen, I, I think that what was said is, is terrible and, and uh there have to be repercussions for things. All I can say is I really um am very sad for uh the cast and especially the crew because uh I I know all of them and I feel for them and in this loss. But all I can say is I'm very grateful to be talking to you about young Sheldon mm. and uh and I feel very lucky to be with a group of people who are just all having
0: a really good time. Where do we see Mary Cooper going in the coming seasons of the show?
2: This season, we got introduced to her starting a, a career, or potential career for the first time. And then that's a whole new thing for her to juggle. I mean, there are some big milestones that have been established on the Big Bang Theory that we know might be coming up, but we don't know when. And so it's, I don't know, it'll just be really interesting to see how this all evolves. But it's been a real pleasure so far.
0: And it's so interesting to see the two shows in parallel and think back and forth in history. It's a very interesting experience. Yes, yes, very much so. Miss Perry, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you very much to Zoe Perry. She is now starring in the CBS hit sitcom Young Sheldon. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. I hope you have a great summer. We'll be back in just a few short weeks with one of the greats of film history, writer-director Paul Schrader. He's written Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, American Gigolo, and now he's back with the very excellent new film starring Ethan Hawke, First Reformed. But you'll have to wait a few weeks for that one. In the meantime, go back and listen to anything you may have missed on popcultureconfidential.com. You can also find them on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great summer. I'm Christina Yerling Biro.